Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So dress listeners, before we continue our conversation with corset-making expert Cynthia Secchi of Red Threaded today, we wanted to bring you this fascinating tidbit of medical wisdom regarding what the author has deemed an alarming evil. And guess what that is? Tight-laced corsets. <laughs> yes, because in the medical journal Botanico Medical Recorder of 1840, one certain Dr. Caldwell cautioned readers, quote, I knew a young female of some distinction as respected both her mind and family in the city of New York, who some years ago became known from tight corseting by the name of the lady, quote, the lady with a small waist. She therefore increased the tightness of her corsets until she became hump-shouldered and died of consumption. (laughs) And he continues, quote, since the introduction of corsets as an article of dress, diseases of the heart among females are much more frequent than formerly, and they have been traced to that cause in innumerable instances, end quote. He also cites breast cancer as a side effect of corsetry, by the way. (laughs) He continues, quote, from the burgeoning view of their destructive effects on the female system to say of corsets that they threaten a degeneracy of the human race, the descendants of tight corseting mothers will never become the luminaries and leaders of the world, end quote. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, sir. (laughs) So, you know, not only is he charging the nefarious corset with causing any number of women's health issues. He's also placing the fate of human existence upon the corset, wearing of or not of, you know? So who knew that corsets had such power? But Cass, I think that you and I already know that because um, we have said on the show many times before that the corset is probably one of the most controversial or contentious garments with all within the history of fashion. Yes, and this article is actually another prime example of the ways in which clothing, especially women's clothing, is imbued with a myriad of meanings beyond mere aesthetics. April, we've clearly stumbled across some corset myth-making in process, and arguably many of these myths still maintain traction today because they were endorsed, and in this case, perhaps created by medical professionals. Yes, and this is not the first, nor will it be the last article decrying the ill effects of corsetry in the historic record. There are so many more to be encountered during the Victorian and Edwardian periods as well. And this just happens to be where we're also picking up with our conversation with Cynthia today. So let's get into it. Let the corset myth-busting continue. So you sell ready and custom-made stays and corsets. And while you do not have any currently for offer on your website, you have done custom Victorian era corsetry. For instance, you have a blog post about this wonderful blue silk custom 1860s corset that I believe was based on an extant corset in the V&A. You also have another wonderful post about the quote-unquote Victorian bellies, that effect that's produced by this type of corsetry from the latter half of the 19th century. 
What is it about the Victorian era corsets that produced this effect? And maybe explain what I'm talking about. Yeah, I love this because this is one of those sort of myths or misconceptions that people have now about Victorian corsetry. People tend to think that corsets are going to make you have a small belly, you know, or kind of suck everything in. But in the Victorian era, that kind of rounded belly shape was the style. So you see this kind of dish shape from the side profile where everything kind of comes in under the bust and then it curves back out over the belly. There's a few things happening to make that effect in the corset. It's all about the patterning. So the panels of the corset or the gores or however it's shaped are cut in such a way to provide room in the front. You often see very kind of slanted panels in extant corsets and patterns that that really slant towards the front and emphasize that shape. And then the other thing that's happening is the busks are usually curved. So if you buy a corset now, including one of ours, because we don't pre-curve them, the, the busk down the center front, which in this period is made of steel and hooks. So it hooks closed in the front and it's a fairly rigid, but still quite flexible steel. In the period, they almost all are curved. So they'll curve in under the bust and then back out over the belly and then always back in at the bottom. And even if you don't want that belly curve, you can still curve in the very bottom of your busk to prevent that little bit of busk peak that you sometimes get. Otherwise, sometimes that, that bottom point will stick out under your gown, which is not great. So you can curve that back in and you can do that on your own corset. Of course, you should always check the return policy on your corsets before you do that because it actually can void returns with some companies. So double check that before you start like bending all the steel. (laughs) But those two things together make that shape. And even if your corset isn't cut specifically to have that belly shape, putting the curve into the busk will kind of start it. And it's super interesting because this curved effect stands in direct contrast to, you know, the turn of the century corset, the S-bin corsetry of the dawn of the 20th century, which really makes you kind of stand up straight, right? It produces this almost flat front effect that kind of pushes the wearer's bust forward and the in the booty back. Can you tell us about the S-bend and how that kind of changed that silhouette? Yeah. This is a really interesting moment in fashion history, too. What was happening at this period is corsets were being mass manufactured. And so a lot of people were wearing corsets that might not have fit them properly. And there started to be literature, I say that with air quotes, about, (laughs) you know, the perils of the corset. Interestingly, that literature was often written by people who then put out new corset styles. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. But... The health movement broadly was happening at this time, right? You have all of this sort of hygienic medicine and clothing and the concept of cleanliness and and health was big. I think, you know, Kellogg, I think, was slightly before this. All of that's happening culturally. So congruently, there was this shift towards what they were calling the health corset. So they came out with this new style called the health corset or the erect front corset, straight front corset, military corset. They came up with a ton of different 
every single course of company seems to have their own slight spin on what to call this. But the idea was that the front would be straight and it would sort of pull the abdomen in, in a way that the previous corset sort of pushed it down and out. So the thinking was that that was more hygienic and healthier. Not necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) Not when you tight lace it. And put still bones in it. Yeah. But to get that effect. And then, oh, the other part of this is that they wanted to sort of free the diaphragm so that the lungs could expand fully. So the top portion of the corset became wider and more expansive in theory. And then the front was fitted closer to the abdomen. Those two things together do create a little bit of that backwards tilt. Interestingly, S-bend seems to be a modern term. I haven't found any reference to it from the period. I'm not really sure why we call it that now, honestly. Probably like mid-20th century book, they called it that, and now that's what we call it. I don't know. Now you're going to send me down a rabbit hole because I'm really good at finding these things out. (laughs) Please find it because I want to know, but I'm usually too busy making corsets to go down the rabbit holes. (laughs) But yeah, so S-bend is a modern term. At the time, it seems to be most commonly called the erect front or straight front corset. And the straight front, it's a mix of seaming. So you get those swooping seam lines that start wide at the bust and just kind of swoop down to narrow, parallel, even spacing down at the front, the belly. And then also the bones are straight and they cross those seam lines in ways that they didn't really do before then. And they also tend to cut more room for the hips. All of those things create that sort of exaggerated, what we call the S-bend shape, plus hip padding, plus stance. Honestly, you can adopt that posture for a photo. And then if you look at actual video footage or, or you know, candid photos from the time, you don't see it quite as much. So a lot of it was just them you know, assuming a pose for the fashionable silhouette. As a corset maker and a historical costumer yourself, you have experience wearing this corset, so you actually can speak to how it affects your body and how it affects your personal stance. And I love that, too, because you do want to imitate subconsciously or consciously the fashionable silhouette of the period. So if that's how you stood, then that's perhaps how you stood and posed. Your corset offerings end in the 1910s, the so-called Titanic era, another movie reference that no doubt inspired people's interest in this period. Please tell us about this corset style and why it is the latest period you offer. This is kind of the end of the corset train, so to speak. It's a very columnar shape compared to previous corsetry. The Grecian look was back, sort of how it was 100 years prior. It's interesting that you get that repeat from the 1810s to the 1910s. And so dresses are are much more form-fitting. They're sleeker. We're using drapier fabrics. And corsetry becomes much more about controlling the waist and the hip more than the bust. At this point, you also start seeing various iterations of early bras or bust bodices or brassiers. So the corsets of this period tend to stop at mid-bust or lower. 
Many of them are underbust. Some of them have just the slightest little gusset. I've seen ones with little one-inch gussets that just barely cup the bottom of the bust in, in small sizes, I will say. And they come very low over the hip. The corsets themselves come quite low, and then the bones stop high enough so that you can still sit. And at this point, corsets were all boned with steel bones for the most part. You do see some whalebone alternatives, but at this point, the whaling industry was really in decline, uh, partly because there weren't many whales left. Yikes. And so uh, by about 1910, corsets are predominantly steel boned. If you have an extant corset and you want to know if it's steel boned or whale boned, just get out a magnet. Uh-huh. <laughs> It'll at least tell you if it's steel or not. It won't tell you if it's whalebone. It could be coralline or some other, you know, non-steel alternative. But if the magnet sticks, you've got a steel-boned corset. Does that help you date corsetry then? Or does that only let you know about what the material is? Yes and no. So you were seeing steel earlier especially on the wide side bones that you see in Victorian corsetry. And I've seen turn-of-the-century corsets that are steel-boned. So the cut tells you more than the boning does, really. Like, they tend to coincide well. Anyway, going back to the Titanic shape, that style, I say Titanic, it's, it's a keyword. It helps us come up in searches. Um, But that style really holds steady into and through the 1920s. It's one of those myths that women completely abandoned the corset in the 20s. Not everyone, not your like great aunt Martha or whoever, you know, like there were women wearing corsets through the 1920s, but they looked like these underbust long over the hip styles with garters. And that eventually transitions into the girdle and the corsetry that we see up through and into the 60s. And you just mentioned another myth. And I mean, we've talked about this on the show, like Paul Paré, Lucille Lady Duff Gordon, uh, Madeline Vianney, they all stake claim at dispelling the corset from women's fashion at the dawn of the 20th century. It's simply not true. Of course, they're more avant-garde clientele who could kind of get rid of those societal conventions and not wear corsets did. But a lot of women still wore some sort of, of corseted undergarment through World War I and into the 1920s when, you know, corsets just kind of became girdles. And we still have that remaining with us to this day. But I'd love if we could talk about corset myths before you go, because there are so many, I feel like. What are some of the other ones that you commonly come up against? I mean, the S-bend obviously is one. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a nerdy myth. That's like a level two <laughs> myth. Right. The ones you hear from sort of just lay people, the average person, you know, you always hear my favorites are that they broke ribs. Removed them as well. And removed them. Okay. So the first part, breaking ribs. Oh, they broke the ribs in their corsets, wearing their corsets. It actually comes from misunderstanding that they were breaking the bones in their corsets. So the whale bones can actually become brittle and break with repeated wear. Whale bone is keratin. It's just like your nails. Just like you can break a nail, you can break a bone in a corset. But it's not your bone. It's the corset (laughs) bone. But I can see how that became conflated into their breaking their actual ribs. But ribs are 
quite flexible and you would have to really cinch that thing down to get anywhere close to breaking a rib. Ribs tend to break from like blunt impact or compression, like, you know, acute compression, not from overall compression and certainly not from lacing yourself comfortably into a corset one or two inches reduction, which is what people were generally doing. The other part of that, the rib removal thing, it sounds so fantastical and horrifying, right? Oh, they removed ribs. But just think about the state of Victorian surgical practice. Like, are we really claiming that they were removing ribs and having elective thoracic surgery at the same time that we're sawing off limbs at Gettysburg? I don't think so. Pre-germ theory, too. Yeah. (laughs) There is no evidence that I have ever found to substantiate this claim. Even today, this is kind of interesting because today there have been, I believe, two people who have publicly come out to say that they have had ribs removed for aesthetic reasons. There are only a couple of cosmetic surgeons who will even touch that idea. Most surgeons will not do that level of thoracic elective surgery because it is still so invasive today. So if we're skittish about it now, I'm sure they were not doing it then. Another one that you dispelled on your website in one of your blog posts was this idea that people did not photo edit at the dawn of the 20th century. Can you tell us about that experience? Because you photo edited yourself, (laughs) which I love. Yeah. So have you ever looked at um, maybe old family photos from the 19th century or, or, you know, back then, and you've noticed that everyone looks really smooth? Like they have a filter over their face. Maybe their shoulders are impossibly sloped. They were editing photos pretty much as soon as we started taking photos. I mean, humans are vain. We want to look our best. And so previously it was portraiture where you could change anything you wanted, really. And then as soon as photography, portrait photography became the common method of portraiture, we started editing ourselves. So if you look at all of the impossibly small waist photos from around the turn of the century, generally, if you look closely, you can see where the photographer or the editor has literally scraped away some of the waist. And you can really tell if they're standing against a plain background because that was the easiest to edit. So a plain white or a plain dark background, very simple to just carve in a little bit on the waist, maybe take a little bit off of the shoulder, take some off of the bust, smooth out that blemish. You know, no one actually had perfect skin back then, but they all look like they do for the most (laughs) part. Yeah, and they all still had beauty standards and ideals to vie with in society. I mean, in a lot of these fashion magazines, like if you look in Les Mode, for instance, which is one of the earliest uh, French fashion magazines that used photography, I mean, these women have impossibly small waists, and it's because they were, in fact, impossibly small. They were, as you demonstrate in your blog post, you literally carved out the sides of your waist, and then suddenly, you know, you're five inches smaller around the waist. I mean, I think tight lacing is a pretty standard corset myth, right, that still is perpetuated. And this idea that women just were always uncomfortable and um, in pain. Tight lacing absolutely was a thing. You know, 
especially if you're going to the big ball or the the huge event and you want to look your best and you bought a dress with a waist that's two inches smaller because you, you know, want to outdo so-and-so who's also attending. We've always had that kind of thing going on where we want to look our best or have the best dress or, you know, be the most fashionable. So tight lacing was done. There were women who would hurt themselves doing it, but it was not the norm. For the most part, women are just wearing corsets as a basic undergarment. The point I like to make about corsetry in regards to this is that it actually makes the fashions of the time more comfortable to wear because if you've ever worn a really heavy skirt on your waist without a corset and you felt that waistband dig into your flesh and kind of move around, the corset completely eliminates that and creates a nice structured base for that waistband or the bustle or the hoop skirt that you're wearing. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. This truly has been a fascinating study at inarguably one of fashion history's most iconic garments. Yes, Cynthia is just incredible. And as promised to her in this episode, I did go down the quote-unquote S-bend rabbit hole. (laughs) You know we love a good fashion history mystery on dress. And I could not find anything referencing the S-bend, you know, the use of the term S-bend prior to the 1950s. The first use of the term I was able to find was in a book written by the English dress interior design and architect historian Doreen Yarwood, and that book's entitled English Costume from the 2nd Century BC to 1950 with introductory chapters on the ancient civilizations. And this book was first published in 1952. And as the field of fashion and dress studies continued to grow throughout the 60s and 70s, Yarwood's book was referenced time and again in a proliferation of publications, including books, newspapers, journal articles, and by 1979, it was in its fifth edition. So no doubt it was incredibly influential in shaping the field and the conversation around the now so-called S-bend corset. So whether or not she took the term from somewhere else or made the observation herself, we may never know. Yeah, because I think at the time it was actually called the Gosharat corset, right? Um, The name of the designer? Yeah, one of the versions of it was, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you have it, dress listeners. Another fashion history mystery solved. And we do hope that you enjoyed going behind the seams of the corset construction throughout history on this week's episodes. If you would like to learn more about Cynthia's work or are interested in purchasing a corset yourself, you can head over to redthreaded.com where you will find not only Cynthia's current corset offerings, but also instructional videos about how to find the right corset for your body size, her fabulous blog, and also a whole listing of the company's events. Also, be sure and follow Red Threaded's Instagram at Red Threaded. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the ways in which your undergarments shape your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you, of course, will always find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. Also, if you have a moment to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we would appreciate your support. Special thanks, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. More Dressed coming your way soon.
History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.